Well, let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. It's a joy to be together. Um, We come together to learn from the Word and praise the Lord in response. And that worship really is not just a one-day thing. It's carried out throughout the rest of the week, and we need to keep that in mind. This is just our time when we come to gather and, and learn from the Word, and then we live it out, and we live out a life of worship to the Lord on a regular basis. First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. We'll begin reading in verse twelve. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless and the sinner? Therefore, those who those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for our time together. Lord, this season that we're entering into, this the world sees it as Easter. We see it as Passion Week or Holy Week or uh, Resurrection, building up to Resurrection Sunday next week. We pray that you would help us to see things clearly, see things from your perspective and and understand the time that we're entering in, that we will glean all that we can from it, from this time of the passion of Christ where he's entering into his purpose for being on earth was to, to die for man. Lord, we thank you for just allowing us to the freedom of celebrating this time. We pray that as we move through this passage that we would uh, speak with clarity, that you would give understanding and that we would then apply these things to our life. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, often we get the big picture of salvation, kind of the John 3.16 version of it and that's really just kind of the starting point we we may go a little deeper in a good solid church and understand the plan of redemption god has a plan of redeeming 
And we, so we go a little bit deeper and a little further in our understanding. And we, we see that our sinfulness, we understand and we come to understand that our sinful rebellion against God is offensive to Him. And it takes a blood sacrifice to be able to pay the price for that sin, to be able to reconcile us with God and bring the two together. And we understand the work of Christ, that that's what Christ was sent to do. That's what he did. Being fully God and fully man, he was able to do that. He was the perfect substitutionary atonement for us, exchanging his righteous life for our sinful life so that we can have justification before God. And then we go a little bit deeper even, and we come to realize that the, the, the fact that, and we grasp the fact that, that it is God's grace that has granted us repentance and faith. And that's a, a little bit deeper and a little bit harder to understand. But for us to believe, He has to grant those things to us. But we need to still go deeper, I believe. Um, in Scripture, Paul says that we are to let this attitude be in us, which is also in Christ. We even have to not just look at the actions of Christ, but we have to understand His attitude as He was going through these things. That's amazing to me. That's a, a far deeper level than I see the church of Jesus Christ today. Going from, from looking at just the, the knowledge, the facts, kind of the cold doctrine we might say to the very attitude of the one who saved us. But that's the idea. Even in, in Peter here. Christ is our model, not only in, our, in his actions but his drive, his motivations, his character, his person, his thinking and attitudes. And I believe it's very rare that we really look at the attitudes of Christ and his thinking and what was going on as he was so gracious and so humble and so loving while he was here on this earth. But when we do look at Christ, when we do look at his life, when we look at it carefully, and I... The more I study Scripture, I just see these things coming out. We see beauty. We, we see um, an elegance of the Christian life being lived out perfectly. In perfect balance of all the elements of righteousness in perfect harmony. And again, the more I study these things, I see them. You begin to see these things in Scripture. R.C. Sproul, I love what he would say. The Christian life is a thing of beauty. And can you imagine looking at Christ's life? It was a thing of beauty. And especially, I think, during His suffering. During this time that we call Passion Week, or Holy Week. The, this weekend we're entering into Palm Sunday to, today. And, um, and it's a perfect time, I believe, to see not only the actions of Christ, but His attitude, His mindset. And we can pick up very easily upon His, his attitudes as He's suffering. And what we see is, at the beginning of the week, He, at, uh, he was in Galilee and he, he set His face, it said. And you see the fortitude of Christ to set His face toward Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be hated there and knowing the, 
the experiences that he's going to have there with those who hate him. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what needed to be done. It's an attitude. The day in which he rode into Jerusalem, the day that uh, Dave read about in, uh, from the book of Luke, he rode into Jerusalem to offer himself as a king uh, to Israel. And it was a time of rejoicing, but again, that was short-lived. Ultimately, he was rejected as king and handed over to the Roman soldiers and killed. But you see his grace, you see his humility shining through. We see his gracious actions as he has a last supper with the disciples. These men who really were just oblivious to what was going on, it seems like. And you see him alone in the garden praying in agony. You see him willingly surrender his will to his fathers as he is betrayed. And then you see, you see the restraint of all the power of the universe in one person. And you see that restrained as he is being beaten by the Roman soldiers, then placed on the cross. And then you hear his very thoughtful and words to his, his mom and very kind words to this thief on the cross. You see his attitude shine through. You see the heart-wrenching rejection of his father as he takes our sin upon himself and his father turns his back on him. You see that you see that agony, you see the attitude of Christ was so gracious in what he did. And then you see the victorious yielding of his life as he says, It is finished, it's complete. Everything that I've come to do, I've, I've accomplished it. And you see a perfectly righteous life. Not only in action, but also in attitude. John described it as full of grace and truth. I love that description. You say, well, what difference does the attitude make? We could just look at the, the actions of Christ. We teach the kids the stories of what happened. But we need to see the, act, we need to see the attitudes. What difference does it make? It makes the difference between conforming to some image of Christ or being renewed to be like Christ. That's the difference. And that's going to make a difference in our sanctification. It's going to make a difference in our Christian walk. A lot of people say, well, what would Jesus do? It's a phrase used to, you know, 10, 15 years ago. What would Jesus do? But I would rather say, well, what would Jesus think? What would his attitude be? How would he view this situation? And we can try to conform to Jesus' action or we can learn from his attitudes. We can learn the way he thought and to be able to think like he thinks and to have the mind of Christ. That's the idea that we see in Scripture. And people ask, what would cause a person to, to die for Christ? We ask this, and Peter asked this in this letter. What, what will cause us... What will keep us, what will keep myself, I'll put it in my own, uh, for, for myself. What can I do to keep myself from turning away at the last minute from dying for him? When I see those flames, when they light that torch, or when I see that sword, or I, I hear another Christian being laughed at because of, him being a Christian, or the, I feel the whip on my back. What's going to keep me in that place? It's going to be attitude. It's going to be thinking. 
Not just a conformity, but a thinking, a renewing of the mind. And, and how do we keep from, from going back or backing out at the last minute? It's a righteous attitude. It's a righteous attitude. That's what we need. That's going to make all the difference in the world. It's going to be a change. It's going to keep us from changing our mind at the last minute when we see this persecution coming. And that's what Peter's dealing with in this passage. And in Christ, we see this inner grace, especially at this time of year, especially when we're looking at his his passion, the, the, his his struggles, his his uh, death on the cross and the beating and all that went with that. Now, Peter knew Christ well. He spent three and a half years with Christ. He knew his attitudes. He knew his thinking, his motives. He, he understood his, his personality. He understood Christ. And he was a first-hand witness, if you will. And you look at Peter's life, and he, you can tell he tried to be like Christ and think like Christ. In fact, when you read this letter, you, you begin to see that. But you look at Christ's life or Peter's life, and you see the way he died. Tradition tells us that when he came time to die, he died graciously. That, that he died requesting that he would, be, he would be hanged upside down on the cross. He was going to be crucified. And in fact, they, they go on to say that he was, uh, he offered to, they were going to kill him first and make his wife watch. And they said, no, please kill me. He said, please kill me first. And he was uh, or, or, I'm sorry, kill its wife first. And she was hung. And then he says, no, I want to be hung upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. And he had prepared his thinking. You could tell his, his attitude, this gracious attitude. And we see that really with a lot of the martyrs in, in his day with the persecution that was going on. They would stand to the stake. And they would say, you don't have to tie me. I'll stand here while you light the flames. Or... While you're burning or, or when you're scourging me. And you see a different attitude. And I believe it's the attitude that makes all the difference in the world. And Peter says here in verse 13, look at your passage. He says, but to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ. We are to share in that suffering. Not that we're suffering for our own sinfulness. But as part of Christ's church, we, we are, 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 have the opportunity to suffer Peter is giving us the same thought pattern and the same thinking that he saw in Christ, the same attitude. He wants us to have that same attitude. And he enters into this kind of a third phase in this letter, a third cycle of exhortation. And he goes a little deeper and he's dealing with our hearts of preparing our attitude so that there would be some fortitude. That there would be some steadfastness, some hope, some joy that, that translates into confidence as we go into these, this time of suffering and persecution that they were entering into here as followers of Christ. And we do so all the way to the end. You begin to smell that smoke. You begin to see that persecution. You begin to see other people being killed. Now, uh, Hebert says, one of the commentaries that I've been reading, he says, he points out here that Peter is using some present active imperatives here. And I believe there's four of them. And he, he calls them, he says that these are for, uh, it calls us to a, a resolute inner attitude. 
That's what Peter's wanting here. To solidify our hearts, to fortitude our hearts, that we will not back up. We will see this persecution all the way to the end. This steadfastness, this joy that, that we will be able to endure. Now that's the Christian life, isn't it? And that's our principle. God's children must reflect Christ's gracious and loving attitude in suffering. Let me say that again. Christ's children must reflect Christ's gracious and loving attitude in suffering. Not just persecution, but in suffering. And how can we do that? How can we be as gracious as Christ? I mean, Christ is so gracious. But you know what? He is our model. How can we do that? Well, Peter gives us four elements here, four commands. Um, The first one is found in verse 12. Let's look at that. Verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised. That's very clear, clear command. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, what was going on? By the way, this is, uh, we do not be surprised when persecution comes. That's a very simple principle, isn't it? Don't be surprised. This is an attitude of anticipation. Don't be surprised. Now, what was happening in Peter's day, and it was around this time that Peter was writing here, the summer of of, um, 64, AD 64, was the summer that uh, uh, King uh, or Emperor Nero decided he wanted to expand Rome or he wanted to to rebuild Rome. He couldn't uh, couldn't rebuild, couldn't expand because there, there was no room. And so he began to what? Light fires, burn burn places of the city that he didn't like. He would burn them out so that he could rebuild it. He just wanted to do that for his own pleasure. And that's what he did. He would command his soldiers to start fires in these locations. And and those fires were lasting for days. And, of course, he was keeping the people from suspecting him and keeping his eyes off of him and keep from upsetting the people. He blamed the Christians. The Christians who were um, under suspect anyway, we don't really trust them because they're not followers of the Roman gods. And so we don't really trust them. And they're kind of suspect anyway. It's easy to just blame them. And this is a persecution, folks, that lasted for 200 years. Many Christians died because of this persecution. Now, Peter is saying, don't be surprised. And this could have been written a little before those fires, probably a little before the fires were started, or maybe a little after those fires were started, but it was around that same time that the persecution had already started, it seemed like, at least in Rome, and starting to expand the Roman world. And he says, he says, don't be surprised. That's a command. That's, it's a natural thing to just be shocked, to be surprised. But what Peter is talking about here is a continuous, ongoing attitude of bewilderment. Why is this happening? What's going on? This, this astonishment, it's, it's happening. And Peter could have pointed to, well, you know, we, we have a, a sin-cursed world, so we shouldn't be surprised that we're going to suffer in this world that is reigned, uh, that, uh, where sin, in which sin reigns. What can you expect? Or, or he could point to the fact that the world is uh, opposed. The world, world system is opposed to righteousness. 
And so we're going to suffer as a result of that. Or he could point to the fact that it's under this world is under Satan's control. And we should, uh, obviously, or we are enemies. Uh, Satan is an enemy of God and we are God's children. And so, therefore, Satan is going to attack us. He could point to that. He could say that, you know, Christ was rejected. But here's what he says. He says, which has come upon you for your testing. Wow. God is doing this on purpose for your your testing so that he can purge his church and cleanse his church and make his church stronger. And he says, don't be surprised. It's as though it's some strange thing. Christ predicted this is going to happen. This is what's going to take place. So Peter is saying to us is don't fail to see, to, to understand the, the sanctifying process of, of what God is doing through these trials. Peter is confident that God is using these trials for, for, for testing, to demonstrate their, their endurance, what they can endure. And that endurance demonstrates their genuine faith. And that's the idea, that's the whole idea, really, of the book of First Peter. So, as far as application to us, the first principle, the first attitude that we are to adapt is to, to stop being surprised. Don't be surprised that an ungodly government is going to antagonize us. Don't be surprised that at Facebook, an ungodly, un, thinking unwisely and rejecting the truth group of people is going to antagonize us or silence us or Twitter or any of the world's devices. Government could be an employer. It could be a husband. There's a natural antagonism there. We shouldn't be surprised. You know, I love what it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel wasn't surprised. He was prepared. He was going into a, a pagan society and, and he was prepared. He says he made up his mind. The king's going to feed me his food. He made up his mind. That's the idea here. We need to understand our place in this world and we just need to be prepared for that. That's a mature attitude for Christians to have. So we prepare ourselves with a anticipation, an attitude of anticipation of suffering. Number two. We keep on rejoicing, even through the persecution, until we see Christ. I love verse verse twelve and thir- uh, I'm sorry, verse thirteen and fourteen. But to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Even greater rejoicing when you see Him. If you're rejoicing when you're going through this suffering, just wait to the joy that you're going to experience when He comes, when you see Him. And He goes on to say, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now... He says to the degree that you're suffering. They, there was different degrees of suffering there. There, was, there could be uh, you buy, you're, you're uh, over uh, or bypassed for a job, passed over for a job. That would be one type of suffering. You may be, uh, you may be brought in and, and given lashes on your back. Or some may be killed. And some suffering may be just watching other Christians suffering. 
And that would be a form of suffering. And to, to the degree that you're suffering, Paul says, or Peter says here. I like what MacArthur says. In order, for, in order to suffer for Christ victoriously is for the heart to have a righteous attitude. It's a righteous attitude, which is an attitude of joy, which yields assurance. That's what yields confidence. And I remind you of Paul and Barnabas in jail. What are they doing? They're rejoicing. They're singing in prison. And that gives that even gives further confidence, further assurance. You see, Peter, Peter's asleep. That's a form of rejoicing. Hey, I could I can just rest in God. I just trust him. He's asleep. He's handcuffed to two guards. And he says, rejoice. Why do we rejoice? He gives us three reasons for rejoice. Number one, we share in the suffering of Christ. He is part of that's part of our identity. A close fellowship with Christ. We are in Him. And that's where it begins. With Him. Us being in Him. And we share in that. By the way, we, He's suffering for our, He suffered for our sins anyway. And we should be joyously suffering and joining in, in His suffering. Just a form of identifying with Christ. Another thing, He says, you're blessed. There's a, a suffering triumphantly here. Suffering triumphantly. This is showing God's special grace and His strength and His endurance in your life. God allows people to see that. It's on display. And it goes beyond just the normal man's ability to suffer. And then notice in verse 14, He, he points out that in the Old Testament there was a a representation of, of God. It was a pillar of fire, a pillar of, uh, of smoke, and it would reside on the, the temple. It was the Shekinah glory is what it was called. And that's what he's referring to here. He says you're blessed because the, the spirit of glory and of God, it rests on you. I, I love that. You can look at some of the pictures, and if you just Google it, it's pretty amazing. Google martyrs, martyred Christians, and a lot of times you'll see uh, ancient pictures or drawings of, of Christians that have been martyred. Now, some of the pictures you'll see halos over their heads. Obviously, those are uh, depictions of, uh, of, of glory that's, that's not really there. But there's a certain glory, folks, when you see the face of these. And there's one picture on our bulletin today. And you see the, the face, you see the picture there, and you see grace as the sword, the sword is being drawn there. It's not a halo, but there is a glory. When God's children, when a believer is willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and to rejoice in doing so, it reflects the glory of God, folks. It's God's glory being displayed I like what Thomas Watson said. Christianity is not the removal of suffering, but the addition of grace to endure suffering triumphantly. That's what I want. To be able to come to uh, the point in my own heart, in my own life, my own thinking, to, to endure suffering triumphantly. As Christ would do it. Graciously, we might say. But I, I like what... J.C. Ryle says, he said, today the cross, tomorrow the crown. We don't live here. This is not our home. 
tomorrow the crown. We suffer joyfully until Christ comes back. So there's a commitment. So by way of application, there's a commitment here that I commit myself now for an attitude of rejoicing in suffering, rejoicing in any persecution that I may go through. I'm going to commit myself to rejoice in that until I see my Savior's face. Wow. Can we do that? Can we sing like Paul and Barnabas with chains? Sing in jail? Can we have peace like Peter when he was in prison? Can we do that? It's an attitude. It's an attitude that you develop now. It has to become stronger. Develop now. It's an attitude of rejoicing at the name of being suffering for the name of Christ. Number three. Number three, we find this in verse 15. And this is an, an evaluate the cause of your suffering to make sure that it is not the result of your own sin. That's a little long. And we've heard this before. But again, Peter is applying it to the attitude, to the heart, solidifying it in our minds. Verses 15 through 18, he says, Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, somebody that's just sticking their nose in, irritating the government or irritating the neighbor, irritating people. Troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, now by the way, that's a new term uh, in A.D. 64 here. It's a fairly new term. They were called Christians first by these unbelievers in Antioch. And the situation was, is that these unbelievers, they were making fun of the, the Christians, the little Christ, the Christians, little, little Christians, followers of Christ. They, that was a, a term of, of uh, mocking and ridicule. But then it turned into a term of endearment. And he says, if you, and, and I love the way he says it in verse 16, if any of you suffer as a Christian, this is the only, the second time this has been used in, in Scripture. The first time was in Acts chapter 11, when it was in Antioch. As a Christian, so you're suffering as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in what? This name, in this name. What name? Christian. Christian, that title that the world has put on us, making fun of us. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Then he quotes Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. He says this, and if it is, and he's just supporting his point with this first, and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless and the sinner? Now, he's raising a good point here. It's, it's, we are not to be ashamed. We're not to hang our head low when we are persecuted. Christian, he's raising a question here. If God is willing to punish his children, think about the, the judgment of those who reject God. And what he's saying here is all is not lost. This is under God's control here. God is just, he's going he's gonna to put judgment even on his own church. In fact, he's going to start with the church. 
to purge the church, to purify the church, to strengthen the church. And he supports that with Scripture. But here's the warning, and here's what we see here. He's depicting a a wartime mentality. That it's us against the world. And he's saying we cannot use this persecution as an opportunity to pick a fight with the world. And and to to do things that, that we should not do. Things are not out of control. They're in God's hands. Not out of control. There's not pandemonium. And that might be the, the time that, that this is going on. The pandemonium. What do we do? We're going to take up uh, swords and, and fight. That wasn't... He says, no, that's not it. It's not a time for taking up arms. It's not a time for a holy war. This is not a, just a chance for you to get even. The world is still the mission field. We're still presenting the gospel to the world. And God has a purpose in this. And it's to correct His children, to purify His church. And we have to evaluate our own attitude. We have to have an attitude of of honest evaluation. An honest evaluation of our own self. He's questioning our motives. We have to question our motives. Am I really in this for the sake of Christ's name? Am I doing this for the sake of righteousness? Am I doing this for the truth of the Word of God? Or for my own glory? Or just the fact I like to fight? Or attention? Or name recognition? Or whatever motive you want to concoct in your own mind? And we must make sure, Peter says, that we're not suffering for our own sinfulness. There's a natural reaping and sowing principle that we just were going to reap what we sow you you be a scoundrel you're going to reap uh, you're going to you're going to get the consequences of that god is in the one god is the one who is in charge now we, we have to evaluate ourselves and we we need to do that constantly we just evaluate well, what was my motive behind that you know what i just i think about judas if Judas would have st- stopped and just listened to Christ at some point and said, you know, why am I doing this? It seemed like he was just driven by money or maybe fame or whatever he, he had into it. If he would have just stopped and evaluated his motives, maybe he wouldn't have done what he did. We're to have an attitude of humble evaluation. And then number four, we see in verse 19, and this is just trust God at every point through our suffering. In our suffering. Therefore, verse 19, those who, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their soul. Now that is so key. Entrust their soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That God is going to do what is right. The word entrust there is, is the idea of a safety deposit box that we entrust. We, we hand that over to somebody for safekeeping. And they're going to put it in that little box and I have the key and there's only, the only one that can get it is me. And, and the idea is I'm trusting God with my soul. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to take up arms and I'm not going to defend myself. You're going to, you're going to defend me. You're the one that's in charge of my life here. And he says that God who is, who is our faithful creator. We're just going back to where, I mean, he created us, right? We're his anyway. We're just returning back to where we began. And we're to entrust ourselves to Him. It's an attitude of complete surrender, attitude of trust, 
in the sovereignty of God, we trust God. And that's exactly what Christ did, isn't it? In 1 Peter chapter 2, if you just turn one page back, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's already given us this. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he did not utter he, he uttered no threat, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He lived a life of faith. Father, I'm going to just trust you. I'm going to just keep on. And that's a uh, continuous action verb. It's just going to keep on entrusting uh, myself to you every day. A constant keeping uh, myself entrusted to you. That's the idea. Christ did that. He trusted his heavenly father. He lived a life of faith on a daily basis. And, and when it came time to, to bear our sin, took our sin upon himself to die on that cross, he trusted his heavenly father. Right before he goes to the cross, what does he say? He says, not my will, but your will be done. It's an attitude of complete surrender. Trust to God, right? Do we really trust God? That's the basic application. I mean, we say we trust God, but it's easy to just say those words. Oh, yeah, I trust God. The hard part is in the doing. It's in the doing. And we demonstrate <clears throat> that we're trusting God with our, our soul by trusting God daily. Our entrusting our soul to Him is seen in our daily trusting Him. And the other way is true as well. Our trusting in um, God daily simply reflects, it just reflects our trusting, entrusting our souls to Him. You can't split the two. You can't split the two. Do we really trust? Do we really trust God? To the point... That soldier pulls out the knife and is ready to chop off your head. The soldier is, is ready to light that flame while you're standing there being ready to be killed. Folks, to keep from caving in, to keep from back, backing away, we have to have the right attitude. It has to be an attitude of anticipation, not, not being surprised. It's a, an attitude of rejoicing through this trial. I'm going to commit myself to that. It's an honest evaluation uh, that, that God could be using this to sanctify me. And, and it's a, a trusting in God. It's an attitude. I'm going to trust God no matter what. And God's children have to reflect Christ's graciousness, His love, even to the point of death. Now, the thing is, with attitude, it takes time to develop. It takes time to mature, doesn't it? Because attitude is a a group of ideas, and those ideas have to come together from Scripture. We would call that theology. We have to have the right understanding of God. We pull together that God is a God to be trusted. and, And here's what Christ thought, and here's what Christ did. And we pull all of these ideas and these thoughts together and it develops an attitude in our own in our own heart and our own mind. And that attitude, folks, gives us a, a confidence. It's a relationship with God. 
Um, but it gives us a confidence to be able to go through suffering. So what I suggest is that we do an intentional and, and deliberate study of Scripture. And, and we look with, at, at Scripture as an opportunity, and what Peter is calling us here to is an opportunity to have a, an attitude check. We may say that. Are we ready to suffer? Is our hearts, are our hearts prepared for that? To the, to the, to the point that I'm willing to die to put my life on the line. Now this week you may have opportunity to read scripture in preparation for Easter Sunday coming up next week. Um, and as you read, I would encourage you to notice just the attitudes of Christ. How gracious he was. How kind he was to do what he did. And then challenge yourself. If it ever came down to it, if it comes down to me suffering, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for just the challenge that Peter presents to us. These commands, hard to do, Lord, hard to do. May we prepare ourselves just, just in case that that would ever happen. We'll never be burned at the stake. We'll never have the sword drawn on us, but we will be laughed at. We, we will have to take a, a stand for righteousness at some point. We may even be laughed at or ridiculed for being a Christian. Lord, help us to bear that with honor as a badge of honor. Lord, help us to apply these things to our life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.